Thank you, ladies and gents. One and all, it's a delight to be back here and to be presenting on Lewis's argument from desire. Um, recently, I took uh, part in a written uh, debate on Lewis's argument from desire in uh, a book edited uh, by Dr. Gregory Basham called um, C.S. Lewis's Apologetics Pro and Con. Uh, which unfortunately was published at a ridiculously high price by a European academic publishing house. Um, but uh, I've uh, now started doing some popular uh, presentations and uh, sort of uh, writing uh, on this uh, topic, although I, I had covered it before in some of my books, and including in C.S. Lewis versus New Atheists. But I think uh, the process of actually defending this argument in a, in a written debate really uh, forced me to uh, up my game on it. Uh, and to refine the argument. And what I really want to show you uh, this evening is the, uh, the breadth of this argument, which I think Lewis puts in a number of different ways. And some scholars have sort of uh, had arguments over what's the, the proper way to put the argument from desire. Uh, so Alistair McGrath, for example, says that he thinks, you know, really it's an, it's an abductive sort of argument to the best explanation. Uh, and I think that tells us more about um, Alistair McGrath's preferred methodology of arguing for things uh, than it does uh, about what Lewis was uh, doing with the argument. I think he puts it in a whole load of different contexts and a whole load of different ways, and I'm interested in sort of building up a cumulative case of different ways uh, into and of expressing uh, this argument from desire. <coughs> so, Lewis famously described his quest to understand what he called an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Um, a mystical experience that he first of all called romantic, and later on he called joy, as in the title of his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, and which writers in the German romantic uh, tradition called Zeinsucht, and I've probably mangled that because I'm not a languages scholar. I apologise to anyone who's doing German. Uh, joy appears to be uh, an innate or natural human desire that's spontaneously occasioned but not satisfied by various worldly, this worldly triggers, if you like. Those triggers are somewhat person-relative, but uh, often uh, have to do with uh, beauty and what the Romantics would have called the sublime. Uh, Corbin Scott Carnell and his study of spiritual longing in C.S. Lewis, Bright Shadow of Reality, argues that Zeinzucht may be said to represent just as much a ba basic theme in literature as the, the theme such as love, romantic love. Uh, I could uh, spend some time trying to give you uh, the triggers of Zeinzucht that do it for me personally, as it were, in person-relative terms. Um, but to sort of sidestep that process, I've just got two quotations for you, which I hope will do it for you, but which are quotations that uh, are both about uh, joy, Zeinzucht, uh, and also, I think, uh, evoke them beautifully. So, first of all, there's a short passage from a book that Lewis himself loved, Graham Greene's The Wind in the Willows, uh, where they first hear uh, the, uh, the distant sound of the pan pipes, the pipes of pan. A bird piped up suddenly and was still, and a light breeze sprang up and set the reeds and bulrushes rustling. 
Rat, who was in the stern of the boat while Mole sculled, sat up suddenly and listened with a passionate intentness. Mole, who with gentle strokes was just keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at him with curiosity. It's gone, sighed the rat, sinking back into his seat again. So beautiful and strange and new. Since it was to end so soon, I, I almost wish I'd never heard it. For it's roused a longing in me that is pain. Nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. Or how about a passage from Lewis's Narnia Chronicles at the end of the last battle. Uh, my favourite evocation of heaven outside of Revelation chapter 21. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, joy, as Lewis describes it, is not a desire for the worldly objects that occasion or trigger it. Joy is not a desire to keep rereading those passages from literature. In as much as those objects ultimately don't satisfy the longing that they occasion in us. Thus, Lewis says, we remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness, no object in this world, will satisfy. And although Lewis is very famous for talking about this joy desire, this romantic desire, he also recognised that um, the argument from desire can appeal to a wide range of what I call existentially relevant innate desires. So, for example, Lewis himself said he counted the irrepressible thirst for immortality as being among the contents of natural desire. Charles Taylor, in his recent A Secular Age, uh, notes what he calls our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil and chaos. Or Roger Scruton talking about those ancient and ineradicable yearnings for something else, for a homecoming to our true community. Scruton argues that beauty points us beyond this world to a kingdom of ends in which our immortal longings are finally answered. Or the agnostic philosopher Anthony O'Hare speaking about the perfection we long for in some other world. Or the atheist Christopher Hitchens commenting on his favourite song, Stevie Winwood's Higher Love, saying, I admit it has evangelical overtones, but I do long for a higher love. Or the atheist writer Bruce Scheiman saying, I want to believe that our timeless quest for goodness and transcendence has its omega point in God. Even though I cannot believe in God, I still feel the need for God. 
Uh, philosophers like definitions, so uh, excuse me whilst I give you a definition. Uh, innate desires are persistently reoccurring behaviour-shaping desires for anticipated coherent ends that properly functioning members of a natural kind, such as human beings, are either born with or with a natural tendency to spontaneously develop, that are consequently widespread, but not necessarily universal, widespread regardless of historical era or age or gender or class or education, sociological factors, are uh, often therefore enshrined in linguistically recognised states of satisfaction and deprivation, and that manifest in cross-cultural artistic themes. Now, Lewis wasn't the first to explore the argument from desire. You can see this theme running back into the Bible, into Augustine in the Confessions, into Pascal in the Pensees, into Thomas Chalmers in On Natural Theology, and in G.K. Chesterton in The Everlasting Man, which we know Lewis read. Lewis wasn't the only scholar, scholar of his day, his era, to use it. Yeah. For example, um, Jacques Maritain, the Catholic Thomistic philosopher, or C.E.M. Jode, the atheist-turned-Christian philosopher, or Leslie D. Weatherhead. Nonetheless, I think it's certainly due to Lewis's influence that an increasing number of contemporary thinkers have become rather interested in this argument. Thinkers such as um, John Haldine, Robert Hoyler, Peter Kreft, Alistair McGrath... Um, C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics Pro and Con, edited by Gregory Basham, with our little debate in it, and so on. And Lewis made very effective use of this experiential point of contact in various presentations of the argument from desire, which I shortened to AFD, uh, most of which take joy as their starting point in books like The Pilgrim's Regress, Surprised by Joy, Mere Christianity, and his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. Alistair McGrath says this is not really an argument for the existence of God in the strict sense of the term. We would need to expand Lewis's point to include the declaration that God either is or is an essential condition for the satisfaction of the natural human desire for transcendent fulfilment. And Haldane and Hoyler make much the same move. And I think I agree on the whole Although I point out that certain formulations of the AFD can invoke God more directly than others. As I say, Lewis presented this AFD in a wide variety of argumentative modes. I think there are various cogent arguments from desire that jointly constitute a stronger cumulative argument. So let's run through a number of ways of one might put the argument starting with what I call the, the prima facie, the on-the-face-of-it argument from desire. It was Samuel Alexander's Gifford lectures on space, time and deity that introduced Lewis to a distinction between the enjoyment and the contemplation of a thing, a distinction Lewis would later parse out or cash out as the difference between looking at or looking along a beam of light. We can talk, therefore, about the, the phenomenology of joy. Sorry, long philosophical word, meaning an easy thing. Uh, the what it's like to experience it of joy. Um, to enjoy joy is to have an inherently goal-directed, teleological kind of experience. An experience that seems to point beyond itself to a transcendent and innately desirable something more, whatever that is. And contemplating that enjoyment of joy leads further away from 
uh, the idea that a naturalistic or pantheistic worldview might do the trick of satisfying that desire. Doug Groothaus uh, comments that the argument from yearning renders credible some transcendent source of human satisfaction beyond the material world and points to a theistic worldview in as much as it's based on the claim that humans desire transcendent reality that can satisfy the human person. And I think if you pursue arguments about could something that's ultimately subpersonal and purely material or something that is impersonal, you know, the one and so on, really satisfy these longings, uh, I think it's obvious that the answer there is, is no. On those worldviews, you have to either give up on the, those longings uh, in the sense of, of, of thinking that uh, you know, all uh, is going to be disappeared into the one and that you will be extinguished. You, you won't have any of your desires satisfied. The whole point is to get rid of desire in order to get to nirvana in a pantheistic worldview, for example. So to take the phenomenology of joy at face value is to look along it towards an innately desirable transcendent other that will satisfy your longings. And I think that points in a theistic direction. Lewis says as soon as you've grasped the simple distinction between looking at and along, it raises a question. You get one experience of a thing as you look along it and another when you look at it, which is the true or valid experience says it's come to be taken for granted that the external account of a thing somehow refutes or debunks the account from the inside. Um, all these moral ideas that look so transcendental and beautiful from the inside, says the wisecrack, are really only a massive biological instinct and inherited taboos, for example. And no one plays the game the other way round, complains Lewis, by replying, if you'll only step Inside, the things that look to you like instincts and taboos will suddenly reveal their real and transcendental nature. Uh, who gets to decide which way round the game is played? Well, actually, interestingly enough, since Lewis's day, the conversation in epistemology, the, the field of philosophy concerned with how we know things, uh, has generally become lots more open to playing the game the other way round. Think of uh, the rise of reformed epistemology and so on. So with Richard Swinburne, we can talk about the, the basic principle of rationality that he calls the principle of credulity, i.e. that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be to us, unless and until we have evidence that we're mistaken. And Swinburne argues that if you say the contrary, i.e. never trust appearances until it's proved that they're reliable, you will never have any beliefs at all. For what would show that appearances are reliable except more appearances? And if you can't trust appearances, you can't trust those new ones either. So Swinburne explains that his reference to the, the epistemic sense of things and the principle of credulity just describes how we are inclined to believe how things are. He notes that the principle applies to things beside your ordinary senses, he applies it, for example, to memory, what you seem to recall. And memory isn't a sensory or a perceptual faculty. So the principle of credulity seems to just be a general epistemic principle affirming the rational priority of trust in our experience of how things seem to be to us. Apply that to the phenomenology of joy, and you can see where that would take you. 
Talking of reformed epistemology, Alvin Plantinga, famous Christian-American philosopher, argues for the properly basic status of theistic belief evoked by desire. He says, perhaps this restlessness without God leads to belief in God, and perhaps God has designed us in this way to impel us to try and get in touch with him. The process leading to the formation of the beliefs in question are directed to the truth. The relevant module of the design plan has as its purpose the production of true belief, even if it goes by way of perception of beauty or even wish fulfilment. So Plantinga is playing the game the other way around, as Lewis would say. Aristotelian type arguments from desire particularly deductive type arguments. Um, Lewis in Pilgrim's Regress makes this comment about this desire in the soul was as the siege perilous in King Arthur's castle, the chair in which only one could sit. He tried to fulfil this desire with all sorts of worldly things and nothing fit. And he said, if nature makes nothing in vain, the one who can sit on this chair must exist. That puts you in mind of Aristotle's famous dictum that nature makes nothing in vain which is much doubted these days but I think much more defensible than you might initially think particularly if you remember to make a little adjustment to the the phrase and add in nature makes no type of thing in vain because even Aristotle can hardly be have been unaware of the fact that not all acorns grow into oak trees or not all seeds grow into plants So, if you take the principle that nature makes no type of thing in vain, and add in that uh, humans have a natural type of desire, joy, that would be in vain unless some object that can satisfy it uh, exists, and that would seem to be an object that transcends this world from experience, it therefore follows that that object of joy must be obtainable in some future mode of human existence. But to cater to modern scientific-based, particularly, doubts about Aristotle's kind of uh, natural principle here, we could work on the basis of a very restricted Aristotelian principle. Just take the principle that nature makes no type of innate human desire in vain. This gives us a a lot less opportunity for counterexamples. Again, add in that uh, same second premise and we'll still get the same answer that therefore... God, this answer to our transcendent desires, exists. Or, as has recently been argued in the literature on Aristotle's principle, um, I've read a debate over whether we should take Aristotle's principle not as a uh, sort of ontological principle of nature, but as a heuristic principle, as something like Occam's razor, that Aristotle thought should guide our thinking about the world. So you could put a, a heuristic argument like this, Um, Humans have this innate desire or desires that would be in vain if God didn't exist to satisfy them. But two, we should assume that no type of natural thing exists in vain until and unless we're shown otherwise, from which it would therefore follow that therefore we should assume that God exists until and unless we're shown otherwise. You can put it abductively, this is the way that Alistair McGrath likes putting it. Uh, Victor Reppert defends a version of the abductive argument. Victor Reppert, of course, uh, is primarily famous for writing about Lewis's argument from rationality in his book, uh, C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. 
but this is a, a blog posting from his blog. He argues this way, he says, On Christian theism, God's intention in creating humans is to fit them for eternity in God's presence. As such, it stands to reason that we would find in ourselves, uh, we would find ourselves dissatisfied with merely this worldly satisfactions, because we're designed and destined for more. Let's put the likelihood that we should long for the infinite, for the transcendent, given that theism is true, at quite high, say 0.9. I would say that such desire, I wouldn't say that such desires couldn't possibly arise on an atheistic worldview, but how likely would they be to arise on such a worldview? So long as the answer is less likely than in a theistic world, then the presence of those desires confirms theism. And if you go to his blog posting, he'll go into the Bayesian probability calculus on it for you. Now, the automatic response to this these days, this kind of line of thinking, I think, is going to invoke some sort of naturalistic, evolutionary, psychological, just-so story, as uh, Stephen Jay Gould called them after Roger Kipling's just-so stories. You know, how the elephant got its trunk and so on. So this uh, naturalistic evolutionary psychological account, NEP, to shorten things, this account of joy offered, say, by atheist Eric Weilenberg, uh, they tend to lack explanatory scope. For example, Weilenberg's account only engages with two features of joy, the restlessness it induces in us and the, the nebulousness, the vagueness of its object. Weilenberg suggests that the nebulous nature of joy might... Being, advant- being advantageous if joy arose in a creature. He says, joy's lack of a clear intentional object might have led early humans down what he calls Lewisian false paths, such as the pursuit of sex and power and adventure and worldly things, hoping that they'll satisfy this desire. Um, though, and those things did have direct fitness advantages that therefore could be selected by natural selection. But this account lacks not only scope, but explanatory power, because Weilenberg only suggests that restlessness might be advantageous. He says, early humans favoured with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart might have outcompeted other humans who were naturally more sedentary and complacent. Well, equally, it might be the case that hominids afflicted with a chronic, ill-defined restlessness of heart would be outcompeted by humans free of such existential ennui. <laughs> Vorlenberg's hypothesis lacks explanatory simplicity compared to the hypothesis that the direct fitness advantages of sex and power and adventure are self-sufficient. Indeed, when our hypothetical ancestors realised, as surely they must, that neither sex nor power nor adventure satisfy the joy desire... Wouldn't that lessen the significance of those activities in their minds, thereby constituting an evolutionary disadvantage compared to creatures lacking the joy desire? Well, maybe. We're just trading just-so stories, in a sense. But the key point, I think, is this, that Wallenberg actually offers no explanation for the appearance of joy in the gene pool, as it were, only for its natural selection should it happen to appear. As Gregory Basham in our debate conceded, these possible explanations are highly conjectural. 
as Rappert concludes, natural desires that are unfulfillable on earth is precisely what you should expect from the point of view of theism. I seriously doubt that we can do this from the point of view of naturalism, even if a halfway decent-looking evolutionary explanation of how such dyes could arise were forthcoming from the naturalist, which they don't actually seem to be. And a couple of words against NEP in general. Um, quick quote, uh, punt to uh, Stephen M. Downs, philosopher of science, says there's a broad consensus among philosophers of science, in a way, that evolutionary psychology is a deeply flawed enterprise. Um, NEP presupposes... We must also point out, of course, the neo-Darwinian account of human evolution by random variation and natural selection, an account that Lewis doubted and which is the subject of more current debate than was the case 10, 20, 30 years ago. So Lewis, in The Funeral of a Great Myth, said that Darwinism as a scientific theory does not in itself explain the origin of organic life and all the variations, nor does it discuss the origin and validity of reason. Granted that we now have minds we can trust, Guaranteed, uh, granted that organic life came to exist, it tries to explain, say, how a species that once had wings came to lose them. It explains this by the negative effect of environment operating on small variations. So he saw a uh, sort of negative role, but not a very constructive role for uh, variation and natural selection. Here's a fascinating recent quote from the atheist philosopher of science Michael Roos, who says, We have today a vocal anti-Darwinian party consisting somewhat surprisingly not only of the evangelical Christians of the American South, who one would expect it of, but of some of today's most eminent atheist philosophers, such as philosopher Jay Fodor, says it's important to see that uh, philology, in common descent, could be true even as adaptationalism isn't. The classical Darwinian account of evolution adaptationalism as primarily driven by natural selection and so on is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. And in his book, uh, What Darwin Got Wrong, co-authored with a biologist, also an atheist, Massimo Piatelli Palamarini, it says, Darwin's theory of natural selection is fatally flawed. We don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, nobody knows exactly how phenotypes evolve. Or the atheist philosopher Mary Midgley, says uh, in her book, Are You an Illusion? Natural selection is already looking increasingly inadequate to explain evolution. Natural selection is only a filter, and filters don't provide the taste of the coffee that pours through them. What a lovely turn of phrase. Or the atheist Thomas Nagel, in his um, book, Mind and Cosmos, says the dominant scientific consensus, in his opinion, faces problems of probability that are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. Um, So there is an um, uh, intra-atheist debate to be had on whether you could put forward a naturalistic evolutionary psychological uh, alternative explanation of a desire like joy, um, because you first have to assume that you can give naturalistic evolutionary explanations of things. Fourthly, you can put the argument inductively. In mere Christianity, Lewis says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfactions for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. 
If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So that, you see there, he's going from the accumulation of examples to drawing an inference. So you could inductively argue something like this. One, humans have an innate existential desire for the transcendent or for God or one or more states of being for which God is a necessary precondition. Two, most innate human desires or existential desires are such that there exists some object capable of satisfying them. Inferential conclusion, therefore the transcendent stroke God probably exists. Now even if you set aside the quite useful, I think, distinction between desires that are innate and desires that are not innate, it seems to me to be a sound heuristic principle, again, to give every desire the presumption of having a fulfilment until either conceptual analysis or evidence shows otherwise. Um, I would play the game by starting by trusting uh, desires have fulfilments. Um, so I would just make a, a general uh, claim there, even apart from the uh, distinction between innate and non-innate desires anyway. Fifthly and finally, reductio arguments from desire. These are actually the ones that I think are most uh, interesting, that most kind of hit home with me personally anyway. Lewis says, I find in myself, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, from the previous quote, but then he goes on. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Is the universe a fraud for giving me desires that it can't answer? It says, a man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. Something odd or fraudulent about having desires that reality gives you, but that it can't satisfy. It's an interesting line of thought. He contended that naturalism as a worldview inevitably generates a disharmony between our hearts and nature. So as the philosopher Jeffrey Gordon concludes, if the universe lacks purpose, a given innate objective purpose, Man is a creature imbued with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he is immersed. In mere Christianity, Lewis, of course, famously observes how we um, desire other people to conform to the objective moral law and how we desire ourselves to be innocent before the moral law, before going on to argue that that law is rooted in God, giving a moral argument for theism, which would be a whole other lecture. But the desire to fulfil moral duty is surely absurd on naturalism, although it fits comfortably within theism. Let me punt you to George Mavrode's famous 1986 essay, Religion and the Queerness of Morality. That's from an age where queerness meant something rather different than it does today. Indeed, everything, including purpose, is objectively meaningless unless there is such a thing as objective value. And I think, therefore... Given the moral argument, uh, in the final analysis, you have to choose between theism and nihilism. That those really are the two ultimate uh, worldview choices. Um, Christian philosopher Daniel Hill argues about life's objective purpose. He says, life has a purpose only if there's an explanation of it in terms of the purposes of an agent that brought life about. 
Belief in a creator and designer is essential, then, for anyone that thinks life has a given, discoverable purpose. So one can produce a, a reductio, sort of a, an argument from absurdity. Um, in one sense, you can use it as an auxiliary syllogism, a backup argument to defend the second premise of the inductive argument from desire. You could say, um, one, either it's true that for an instantiated kind, such as human beings, with existential desires innate to that kind, it's consistent with the way the world is that a creature of that kind should at some time have at least most of those existentially relevant desires satisfied. Or, that's not the case, life is substantially absurd, at least for beings of that kind. This is to talk about the absurdity of life in the way that French existentialist philosophers like Albert Camus discuss it in the myth of Sisyphus, for example. But second premise, let me make this claim to you, that life is not substantially absurd at least for beings of our kind. From which it would therefore follow that it is consistent with the way the world is that a creature of kind K should at some time have at least most of its existential desires satisfied. Which is to say, which is as much to say, that most innate human existential desires are such that there exists some object capable of satisfying them. Which backs up one of our premises of the inductive argument in a different way. But you can put a, 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 a reductio argument as a direct argument from desire. One could argue like this. Given an instantiated kind K possessing innate existential desires, the existence of K would be absurd to the extent that it is impossible for any member of K to have those desires satisfied. Two, humans are an instantiated kind K with innate existential desires that are impossible to satisfy unless God exists. Three, therefore, unless God exists, human existence is absurd. I am simply agreeing with Sartre and Camus and Nietzsche and so on at this point. But four, this is where I disagree with them, human existence is not absurd. Five, therefore, God probably exists. Now, of course, the key premise here the point of difference between me and the existentialists and the nihilists is four. But I would simply argue that premise four is defensible as a properly basic belief. If the satisfaction of our innate existential desires requires God, then the properly basic belief that life isn't absurd um, places the burden of proof, at the very least, on the nihilists' shoulders. Now, some may profess a willingness to pay the price tag attached to this argument, as it were, of affirming nihilism. But that affirmation is, I claim, not an easy one to make, and certainly not one that's easy to consistently sustain. It's one thing to make that claim in the philosophy seminar. It's quite another to make it when you're playing billiards with your friends with David Hume afterwards. And indeed, if you continue thinking down that road and trying to embrace nihilism, let me twist the knife another notch, as it were, with a, an argument based on a thought by um, Dr Andy Bannister, 
who puts a sort of epistemological reductio argument from desire, which, of course, bears some similarities to Lewis's argument from rationality and Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary anti-naturalism argument. So think through this with me to end. If we believe, if we embrace the belief that naturalism is true, surely we must believe that naturalistic evolution of some kind has equipped us human beings with various innate instincts and desires that exist in vain and that fail, as it were, to map on to anything in reality. The belief that naturalistic evolution has equipped us human beings with these innate instincts and desires that exist in vain and fail to map onto reality should surely lead us to doubt whether our conscious cognitive instincts and desires are trustworthy. But if we doubt whether or not any of our conscious cognitive instincts and desires are trustworthy, we'd be committing ourselves to a deep cognitive scepticism from which it would simply be ad hoc to accept belief in the truth of naturalism, say. Hence, it seems that belief in naturalism should push us towards a scepticism that would include a scepticism about belief in naturalism. But, five, we shouldn't accept any belief that leads to scepticism about itself, you know, soaring off the branch you're sitting on, which is not a good idea. So six, therefore, we shouldn't believe that naturalism is true, which is at least part of the way towards believing that theism is. <laughs> Although not the whole way, of course. Now, where had we got to at the end of, of noting that there are a, a variety of ways of putting this argument, which I think are, are logically valid and which indeed I think are sound, are, are cogent arguments. What would I claim for the argument from desire? Well, it's better to um, uh, undersell and over-deliver than vice versa. So let's be cautious and let's say this. I think each of these arguments from desire, as it were, has a, uh, gives us at least what you might call a scintilla of evidence for the truth of theism. Now, if each of those arguments on its own gives us a bit of evidence, at least a scintilla of evidence, then the combination of them must give us more must give us at least, let's say, a reasonable suspicion of theism being true. And indeed, I think when you take into account the, the cumulative force of a cumulative argument that is more than the sum of its parts, because it's, it's mutually self-reinforcing, we should at least say that the argument from desire is enough to give us probable cause to think that theism might be true. Um, but, of course, that is only one of the arguments for theism, and I could uh, spend another whole week of lectures going through a whole other bunch of arguments in the cumulative case for theism. But I think this is a, a fascinating um, area of argumentation uh, and that we can learn from Lewis to put it in a cumulative case in a number of different ways. Uh, and it, it's one of those arguments which is a bit like the way in which the moral argument... The moral argument starts from something that's part of everybody's day-to-day -day experience. If you're going to talk to people about the cosmological argument from the Big Bang, showing the universe had a beginning, or the fine-tuning argument of the physical constants of nature or something, first of all, you might well have to give them a lesson in cosmology. <sighs> you know, um, unless you're really into cosmology and they are, in which case, great, you're up and running. Uh, but, you know, there's a sort of a, a knowledge gap there that you might have to first bridge. 
But in people's moral experience, they know about morality. And so you're up and running in talking about the moral argument much more quickly. I think it's the same with the argument from desire. You're up and running with something that is a very widespread, at least, experience when you start looking into even the, you know, the films, the music, the literature of our culture often expresses these things, as Carnell says, and gives us points into, ways into the arguments. And it's actually an argument where, as I did with just a few quick quotations, you can actually try and give an audience triggers that give them the experience that I claim itself innately, inherently points towards God. Uh, and that's a fascinating thing for an argument to, to do, not just to be a, a pointer towards God, but an experience towards God, as it were, at one and the same time. Thank you very much for listening.